All right. Well, today we continue our sermon series, and if you missed last week's sermon, this this is a three-part series, and I generally try to have any sermon in a series be as one-off as possible, and even if you missed last week, you'll get a blessing today, but I want to encourage you to hop on YouTube, go to the Edmund Adventist page, and listen to last week's sermon, because it will, it will help pull things together. And also, if you know that you're not going to be here next week, I want to encourage you to remember, write yourself a reminder so that you can at some later date come and check out next week's sermon on YouTube because next week is going to pull everything that I've talked about together. It's the sermon I'm most excited for. And as I look at the clock and I realize that I haven't been up here this early in a long time, I really want to just go ahead and preach next week's sermon, but I won't. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so last week, we, we laid some groundwork with context and the faith that we as Christians have that God's word changes things. God's word changes things. And so now the context has been laid and we move into today's topic, which is covenant, covenant. Last week, we learned that we are a part of God's family. We've been grafted in to this new family that is known as spiritual Israel. We have entered into covenant with creator God, and now what are we supposed to do with that information? Good information, yes, but does that lead to something? And in order to answer that question, we have to see what his goals were in making the covenant in the first place. For most of us, when we read Genesis chapter 3, it becomes quite clear that a, a fracture took place between our relationship with God, this up and down sort of thing. A wall was erected, and our sin created a chasm in our connection with the creator. But do we realize that another fracture took place right there in the Garden of Eden, right there in Genesis chapter three? Sin brought about a relational crisis between humanity and God, yes, but also amongst humanity itself. As soon as God stepped into the garden and asked, what's happened here? Then the blame game started. So humanity severed its relationship with God, and the natural reaction coming from that is that there was a severing of relationship between humans and their fellow humans. This relational crisis is what brought about feelings of guilt, shame, alienation, criticism, judgment, and discord, these these negative feelings that we all know too well. These are the walls that separate us from each other. And so the Bible story is an explanation of what happened in Genesis 3, but then also what God's plans are to fix it. All this to say, And when we get to the commandments of God, it is not only about connecting us back with God, 
but it's also God's way of connecting us back to each other. God's covenants envision a social realignment where God himself orchestrates the healing process. And this plan is previewed right there in that same chapter, in Genesis chapter three, because last week we saw that this chapter delivers the first promise of a savior that was to come. Jesus came to heal broken relationships, not just to reconnect us back with our creator, but to reconnect us back to each other. I love this quote from the book, The Ministry of Healing. Christ came to break down every wall of partition. He came to show that his gift of mercy and love is as unconfined as the air, the light, or the showers of rain that refresh the earth. And so what I hope to make clear to you today is the fact that the church, us, spiritual Israel, is invited to promote righteousness and justice by partnering with God to tear down cultural, religious, and political barriers, political walls. I just messed myself up here, but I'm gonna fix it. (laughs) All right. Breaking down these walls in order so that we can advance ourselves, yes, but the rest of the world in human flourishing. In connection to the Abrahamic covenant, we find this in Genesis 18. For I have known him in order that he may command his children and his household after him that they keep the way of the Lord to do righteousness and justice that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has spoken to him. So the way of the Lord is righteousness and justice. And so this covenant that God made with Abraham and his descendants was contingent upon them enacting righteousness and justice in the world. This is very, very important for us to understand. But for some reason, this this phrase, righteousness and justice, it doesn't get a lot of publicity within Christian circles. Yet the Hebrew and Greek words for justice appear over 1,000 times in the Bible. It's almost as if it was important. It's almost as if God wants us to really grasp and understand this concept. Now, there are various words that are used to describe this concept because it's, it's very expansive. The biblical concept of justice covers just about every aspect of life the personal and the social, the public and the private, the political and the religious, the human and the non-human. And when we think of the word righteousness, typically we tend to think about personal moral purity. But in a biblical sense, we often find this concept appearing alongside the concept of justice. They are often like that that verse that we just read, together, beside each other, creating a word pair. For example, in Amos 5, 24, but let justice run down like water and righteousness like a mighty stream. Isaiah 32, behold, a king will reign in righteousness and princes will rule with justice 
Again, in Psalm 72, give the king your judgments, O God, and your righteousness to the king's son. He will judge your people with righteousness and to your poor with justice. Over and over again, we come across in the Bible this same idea that justice is really righteousness and righteousness is really justice. They are two sides of the same coin. They're inseparable in the biblical narrative. Now, what does this mean to us? Righteousness in the Bible incorporates the idea of doing justice. And doing justice in the Bible incorporates the idea of righting what has gone wrong. Righting what has gone wrong or restoring things to a condition of rightness or righteousness. It's the right ordering of the universe back to the way in which God originally intended reality to operate. It's restoration. Now, this is an expansion upon the way we generally view righteousness. It's not just about you, but it's about everyone else. Everyone else. It's not about religious piety. It's about holy restoration. Hear me out. The Abrahamic promises were not simply some spiritual promises given to a nation that relate exclusively to their personal relationship with God. No, embedded into that was the reality that they lived in a messed up and broken world and that part of their journeying with God, being his follower, doing the ways of the Lord was to engage in a process of making right what the enemy had caused to go wrong. That, dear friends, deals with more than just spiritual things. It bleeds over into the, the nitty-gritty of human society, human civilization, and human relationships. And this is the exact reason why there's passage after passage after passage about the oppressed and the orphans and the widows. And not just in the New Testament, there are more of them in the Old Testament. The major and minor prophets were sent to Israel, to the church of the Old Testament, with the explicit task of trying to redirect ancient Israel to this concept of righteousness and justice. The narrative of the Old Testament is really just a long history of God's people repeatedly forgetting and losing this vision. Israel was meant to be a prototype. The first of its kind in the world, they were called to set the example and to be the original human rights activist. That's what Israel was supposed to be. The election of Israel was God's strategic way to model righteousness and justice on earth. The calling of Israel was to break down the walls that were erected by sin in Genesis chapter 3. Israel was supposed to be the wrecking ball to break down the walls of division, animosity, alienation, and hatred. So Israel was called, yes, they were, but it wasn't some form of favoritism. I've, I've heard that before from people. 
You know, they, they look at the story of the Old Testament. It's like, it seems like God is being unfair. It seems like God is playing favorites. A particular nation was called, yes. But they were called in order to bring restoration to all the other nations in the world. Genesis 12, one, and three, one through three. Now the Lord had said to Abram, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. Yes, that did happen. But then this line, and in you all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. So the promises to Israel are all contingent on Israel being a blessing and making the promises of God accessible to the Gentile world. Again, I repeat, God's covenants were conditional promises. And if that is true, which it is, then that's not really favoritism. It's not favoritism. And if we, if we come to accept that, then we can begin to wonder, is it possible that the covenant of God was really also a covenant with the Gentiles, not just with the Jews. Because if Israel fails to make the promises of God accessible to the Gentiles, then the promises of God to Israel are left null and void. Last week, we touched on the fact that much of what God said about Israel's job was also pointing forward to the Savior, that was to come. And it, it's, it's not just hindsight that paints this picture. Israel was supposed to spread righteousness and justice to the world, yes, even to the Gentiles, and we see this all throughout the Old Testament. Isaiah 42, it says this, Behold, my servant, and this my servant here, my elect one, this is God talking about Israel but also foreshadowing Christ. Behold, my servant, whom I uphold, my elect one in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. He will bring forth justice for truth. He will not fail nor be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth. And the coastland shall wait for his law. And a few verses later, I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness and will hold your hand. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people as a light to the Gentiles to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the prison, those who sit in darkness from the prison house. A few chapters after that, indeed, he says, it is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel, I will also give you as a light to the Gentiles, that you should be my salvation to the ends of the earth. God is saying, it, it's, it's too small for you to think that I'm just here for you, that I just care about you and nobody else. The truth that God's restoration process was for the whole world, it's right there in black and white. Yet Israel kept forgetting. And this is why C.S. Lewis wrote, God selected one particular people and spent several centuries hammering into their heads the sort of God he was. 
Those people were the Jews, and the Old Testament gives an account of the hammering process. Amen. <laughs> Maybe we can relate to the stubbornness there. It's like God tells us something, but he, he has to keep hammering it into our heads. It's like he's trying to drill down into our brains, drill down into our hearts what he expects of us, what he wants of us. But ultimately, we know that Israel left this job unfulfilled, unfulfilled. But the good news is, as I mentioned last week, that Jesus succeeded where Israel failed. We arrive in the New Testament, and it quickly becomes evident that Jesus begins to retrace the steps of Israel. We open the book of Matthew. We see the, the genealogy of Jesus, the lineage of the Savior. Now remember, the different gospel writers were writing their gospels with a certain audience in mind. And so Matthew was writing to an overwhelmingly Jewish audience. He was writing to Jews. So Matthew's gospel of all the Gospels, is the most Jewish of them all. You will see the most callbacks to the Old Testament, the most callbacks to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And the importance of that fact will become clear momentarily. But just, just keep that in your back pocket. Matthew 1, it opens up the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham begot Isaac, Isaac begot Jacob, and Jacob begot Judah and his brothers. Judah begot Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Now, I, I've bolded that for you. Because if you were a Jew in the first century reading this, that name would have jumped out to you in a very bold way. It would have stuck out like a sore thumb. But it continues. Perez begot Hezron, and Hezron begot Ram. Ram begot Aminadab, Aminadab begot Nashon, Nashon begot Salmon. Salmon begot Boaz by Rahab. Boaz begot Obed by Ruth. Obed begot Jesse, and Jesse begot David the king. And then this part, this just slays me. David the king begot Solomon by her, who had been the wife of Uriah. Can't even speak the name. <laughs> wow. I love the fact that this part of the genealogy, it's so touchy to the Jewish audience that Matthew leaves her name out of it. He's like, I know a lot of what I'm saying. I know a lot of these names I've already put down. It's gonna be a tough pill for them to swallow. And so I think maybe in Matthew's mind, him leaving her name off of this was sort of his way of thinking, you know, maybe a little bit of sugar will help the medicine go down. But here's the Messianic bloodline. The Messiah's bloodline included these four women. It's right there, right there in the Bible. First page of the New Testament. Now, there are many other women who could have been included here. Yes. But also, Jewish genealogies typically only included men, only the men. So when you see women's names in this genealogy, especially these women's names, you can be assured that Matthew has an agenda here. Matthew is wanting to get a certain point across. 
He wants his readers to have a specific takeaway here. So then why did Matthew choose to include Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba? First of all, all of these women had question marks next to their name in connection with their marriage. Question marks. But more importantly, these are women to a Jewish reader who will stick out like a sore thumb because they're all foreigners. None of them are Israelites. (laughs) These are not Israelite women. And they weren't just any foreigners. They were the type of foreigners from the, the, the nations that Israel historically hated. Hated. Jesus, according to Matthew, according to this genealogy, is related to Canaanites, Moabites, and Hittites. This is how Matthew decided to introduce the Messiah to a Jewish world and to his Jewish audience in the most Jewish book in the New Testament. (laughs) This is what Matthew decided to do. Hey, Messiah is here. Y'all need to know that. But you also need to know that Messiah has foreigners' blood running through his veins. That's the agenda that Matthew has. That's what he wants his people to get, to understand. And we've got centuries of the Israelite people failing to grasp that God's covenant wasn't just for them. As we've just read in a number of verses, it was also for the Gentiles. And then at his very birth, Jesus comes in like a wrecking ball. And it doesn't stop with his genealogy. It doesn't stop. Because as you move out of Matthew chapter 1 directly into Matthew chapter 2, we get a story that suggests that pagan foreigners recognize the birth of the Savior while Israel's established religious leaders had no clue. No clue what was going on. And it's not because they didn't have the prophecies. They had them memorized. I hope I'm conveying how provocative this would have been to a Jewish audience. This would have had some folks pretty upset. (laughs) the outcasts and the foreigners are literally at the forefront of what God is doing in the world. Yet, it still doesn't just stop there either. Throughout Jesus' entire ministry, he's he's dropping breadcrumbs as, as the bread of life. He's dropping breadcrumbs for anybody that has eyes to see and ears to hear. So I mentioned this last week. Now we're going to spend a couple minutes here. Christ's life repeats the history of ancient Israel. And this is why Jesus in John 15 could come out and say, I am the true vine. The true vine. Because the other vine, the nation of Israel, had failed to produce fruit to feed the nations of the world. And so Jesus is like, yes, I know that you know of another vine. You might believe you are part of that vine, but I'm here to say I am the true vine. 
And here are a few examples of Jesus retracing Israel's steps. Both Jesus and Israel are referred to by God the Father as his firstborn and also my son. The children of Israel were brought up out of Egypt. We saw that in Exodus. But that verbiage out of Egypt, that exact terminology was used in Hosea 11. And then when you turn to the New Testament, when you turn to Matthew 2.15, you see that Matthew reiterates that. He quotes it directly from Hosea, but now he applies it to Jesus. Israel passed through the Red Sea. Jesus was baptized in the Jordan. Israel spends 40 years in the wilderness. Jesus spent 40 days in the wilderness. And during Israel's sojourn in the wilderness, they were given the book of Deuteronomy. And while Jesus was being tempted in the wilderness, he responded to the enemy, it is written, it is written, it is written three times. Can you guess what book he quoted from? Deuteronomy. Israel had 12 tribes. Jesus had 12 disciples. Jesus' life is a retracing of Israel's history because Jesus is now making a statement. In his amazing book, Knowing Jesus in the Old Testament, Christopher Wray says this, the Old Testament tells the story that Jesus completes. This means not only that we need to look at Jesus in the light of the history of the Old Testament, but also that he sheds light back on it. The arrival of Jesus the Messiah marks a new beginning, indeed a new creation. God is doing his new thing. Jesus is not only the end of the beginning, he is also the beginning of the end. So what is this new thing that Jesus is up to? And how does he wish to go about accomplishing it? Jesus wants to do this new thing through his church. But as we've seen here today, it's not really a new thing. It's actually a really old thing that was laid out in the pages of the Old Testament. It just hadn't fully come to fruition yet. But then after Jesus, this new thing officially kicks off, and it kicks off in the book of Acts, the book of Acts. And that is where we will land this plane and wrap this all up next week. We're going to look at the concept of conversion, and we will spend all of our time in Acts chapter 10. So if you want to get ahead of the game, I would encourage you to read Acts chapter 10. There's some really interesting stuff there. But until then, I, I want to leave you with something that I've alluded to and made mention of in today's sermon, and that is this. God's love is a wrecking ball of equality. God's love is a wrecking ball of equality. The enemy came into this world and in partnership with humanity has erected walls of separation. And there are countless walls that divide us against each other in this world. There are racial laws, walls and gender walls, and religious walls, and political walls. We turn against each other because of caste systems, nationalities, and worldviews. But Jesus then came into this world, and also in partnership with humanity, has begun the work of breaking down these walls. 
We've been reminded that within the family of God, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. We are all called to work in building up a new kind of kingdom. And this kingdom is not of this world. It will include a great multitude that no one can even count because it's to be made up of people from every nation, tribe, people, and language. We are all equal in God's eyes, and there will be no dividing walls in his kingdom. There may be walls around the city, but if you read carefully in Revelation 21, it says that the gates will never be closed. All are welcome to come to the feast. There are unlimited open seats, and God is tasking us, his church, to go out into the highways and the byways and let people know that they are invited to the feast. That's our job. That's the great commission we've been given. That is our call. That is our purpose. We have good news to share and invitations to extend. And dear friends, I pray that no kind of wall of separation stops us from letting people know that their Savior wants them at that banquet table. Next week, Acts 10 will offer us God's perfect roadmap for finishing this work. But for now, I wonder if there's anybody here who wants to join in this great commission. Maybe you've failed in the past. Maybe you've made mistakes. Maybe you've allowed some sort of wall to hold you back from sharing the good news with someone. But now, after this refresher, now after seeing these things and knowing what your role is and what Christ wished to do in you, you're saying, I will no longer let any sort of wall of separation, of division, keep me from sharing the good news because I believe Jesus came to break down every wall of partition. And if that is you, I just ask that you would stand with me right now. And your standing will represent a commitment that you are making with God, and I believe he will seal that commitment. And whenever you feel like you're not enough, whenever you feel scared or anxious, but God is leading you to extend the invitation to the banquet to somebody else, I believe the Holy Spirit will come into you and give you whatever you need in that moment to speak good news to a world that desperately needs to hear it. That is going to be my prayer. Before we pray, though, I'm going to invite Guy to come forward. He has our gift from the heart. And I'll leave it up to Guy. If he wants to leave you standing so you, you think about why you're standing while he sings. But after Guy is done, I'm going to come back up for the benediction. And um, we're, we're going to have our usual time of prayer together after that as well. Every day they pass me by I can see it in their eyes 
Empty people filled with care Headed who knows where On they go through private pain Living fear to Laughter hides their silent cries Only Jesus hears People need the Lord People need the Lord At the end of broken dreams is the open door people need the Lord people need the Lord when will we We are called to take his light to a world where wrong seems right. What could be too great a cost for sharing love with one who's lost through our can feel all the grief they bear. We must give the words of life only can share.
The Holy Spirit is good, y'all. Hey, guy, did you know about what my appeal was specifically going to be? I had no clue what song he was going to sing. And I, I, I couldn't have orchestrated that better myself. And as I'm sitting there and I'm listening to the words and, and, and realizing that the Holy Spirit is working in our lives and working in this place, I'm, I'm reminded of the fact that we have to be willing to listen to the Holy Spirit when he is leading and when he is guiding. And so, you know, uh, yes, I, I know that we oftentimes we might hear that sort of song and we look out and, and look at all those people out there that need the Lord. But sometimes we need to remember that it's us too. We also need the So I just, I can't, I can't end this service today assuming things. And I, I don't know where all of you are in your walk with Christ. I don't, there are some people in this place that I don't know. I don't recognize your face. I'm seeing you for the first time. And so I, I don't want to end this without extending an invitation. So I, if you have never accepted the invitation to that banquet table, if you have never accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, and you want to say right now, I want to be at that table. I want to be a part of this new thing that God is doing in the world. And then go out and invite others in. If there's anybody in here, I just want to invite you to come forward. I'd love to pray with you. Is there anybody here who fits that description? And I want to also just expand that a little bit because I know sometimes, especially if maybe you're in a new place and you don't know anyone, you're not going to just walk up front. I want to extend the invitation that after this service, I'm going to be around. And if you want to come to me privately and have this conversation, I would love to have that conversation. But y'all, we, we got a lot of work to do. We got a lot of work to do. I've been in this place for over six years now. And, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm preaching these sermons and I'm, I'm, I'm leading somewhere. You might remember my sermon on wholeness. And we focus on, on the fact that it's the, the physical and the mental and the spiritual. And since I've been here, we as a collective group have done a really good job of emphasizing the spiritual. But there are some people that have been hurt by churches, rubbed wrong by Christians, and they don't want to hear it. But they want physical wholeness. They want mental wholeness. And I think we have some things to share on those matters as well. Jesus met people where they were, met their physical needs, met their emotional needs, and then bade them come and follow me. We got to make sure we're not putting the cart so far in front of the horse that we're the only ones hearing the message. And so I just, I just want you to know and, and to be praying that my goal in this year, and we've already started some of these things. You've heard me sharing some of the things that we're working towards and, and, and moving to. But my goal is for us to still focus on that spiritual stuff that we've been focusing on, but we need to look at the other aspects of what wholeness means. How can we reach our community that is not whole physically, that is not whole mentally, 
in the hopes that maybe if we can help them in those areas, then they might be willing to entrust us to lead them spiritually as well. And so we focus a lot on the spiritual thing. The other thing is there are two ways that we as a church need to be moving. We need to be moving outward and we need to be looking in as well. Six years, a lot of focus inward. A lot of focus inward. We got to start moving out as well. If we truly believe in this truth that we have, if we believe that it is right, if we believe that it has the power to make people whole, then we got to share it. We got to share it. And we got to speak the words that people can understand. We got to learn what their needs are and meet those needs. We got to stop answering questions they're not asking and stop scratching where they're not itching. And so I I want you to pray about this. I'm not saying this to to call you out or to be mean to you because I am here with y'all. We've all been doing this together. And I think we've done some really good things. And I think that God has been preparing us for something big. And this is the year that I pray that we step forward into those things. Get some more stains on the carpet. Get some more scuffs on the wall because people are coming in and using this place, not just us. So pray about that. Pray about that. That wasn't in my notes. That's just, (laughs) that's just, that's just from my heart. Pray about that, please. And and if you have ideas, if if God is leading you in a certain way, let me know. Let me know. I know you you she probably doesn't want this, but I I can't help but share because I think it would be encouraging. But you know, Nancy, you are such an encouragement. You are such an encouragement to me. Nancy, is, she, she has not even joined the Adventist church. She's joined our family, yes, here, but she's not even an Adventist, and she is leading the way, getting a message of health out into our community. We need more people like that, and we need to be encouraged and move in those directions too. So thank you, Nancy, so much. You are such an encouragement, and I believe that God is going to bless those efforts. All right. But let me pray, and and after I pray, as as we typically do, I want to invite Mike to come forward as our elder chair for today. He's going to stand on the east side of the steps. After I have the benediction, I'll come down here. And if there's anybody here that has any special needs, any special requests, or maybe an exciting praise that you want to share, we'd love to hear from you, pray with you, and lift your petition, your praise up to the Lord. Let us pray. Our loving, gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we know the stories. We know the call that you gave to Israel. And we saw over and over and over that they they just kept failing. They kept losing sight of the vision. And Lord, I think if we're honest with ourselves, that we can look at our own lives, that we can look at our own church and, and, and say that, yeah, there have been times that maybe we've lost the vision too. But Lord, we want you to come into this place and to give us back that vision to remind us of why we're here, why we're called as Christians. It's the Great Commission to go and make disciples, to baptize them, and then to teach them all these amazing things that Jesus has shared with us, things that can help to make us whole in body, in mind, and in spirit. Lord, give us opportunities to share. Give us the conviction that we need to pray to you daily to give us those opportunities to share. 
Lord, we just want to give ourselves to you. We want to open our hearts completely so that you may come in and sup with us there. Lord, use us as a light in this community. Use us as a light amongst each other as well. Remind us that we are a part of this new thing called spiritual Israel. We are a part of your family. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. And you've got amazing plans for us. So Lord, we give ourselves to you in the same way that Jesus gave himself to us completely. And we ask this all in his precious name. Amen and amen.